Hello there, and welcome to TWM, the weekly roundup programme of the Scottish Football Monitor, asking the questions the mainstream media will not ask, right here at sfm.scot. Hi, I'm John Cole, and this week the main football stories surround teams at the bottom of the league, Dundee, Motherwell and Inverness, Caledonian Thistle, and the last day decider in the Championship decide to decide in the makeup of the playoffs. The race for second in the Premiership isn't quite over either, although the political fallout of the Glasgow Derby between Rangers and Celtic may prove to be more significant than the mere allocation of points. Off the field, the Craig White trial has seen three heavyweights of the old Rangers, Walter Smith, Ali McCoy, and David Murray, in the witness box, and some extraordinary evidence has been offered by all three. Joey Barton's 18-month ban handed down by the English FA for betting in matches and effectively ending his career has raised some eyebrows north of the border given the draconian nature of the punishment compared to punishments handed out in Scotland for arguably more serious offences. And of course the morality of the relationship that football holds with betting companies has now been brought into question as a consequence. I'll also be looking at the career of one of the unsung greats of Scottish football, Harry Melrose, of Rangers, Dunfermline and Aberdeen. Well, in the Premiership over the weekend, Celtic beat Rangers comfortably at Ibrooks. Uh, their five goals to only one in reply putting the champions in easy street and crucially from their perspective still unbeaten in domestic competition Aberdeen though failed to take the opportunity to, to increase their nine point lead over Rangers by failing at home at St Johnson whose 2-0 victory over the Dons leaves them six points behind Rangers and with some momentum going into those last four matches as they look to secure the last European spot Hearts and Thistle, who drew two each in an exciting encounter at Tynecastle, are six and ten points respectively behind Saints. At the bottom, Neil McCann, yes, Neil McCann, Neil McCann's Dundee beat Motherwell 3-2 at Fir Park to put the Ds a point ahead of Well, who are now second bottom. Inverness were soundly beaten by Ross County in the Highland Derby at Dingwall on Friday and seem to be doomed seven points adrift at the bottom, but mathematically they still have a chance to save their league status and perhaps Richie Foran's job as manager. Hamilton, after a defeat by Kilmarnock at New Douglas Park, are in 32 points, the same as Motherwell, but with a goal difference of four better than the Steelmen. Fascinatingly, all bottom six clubs are not out of relegation danger, although Kelly fans will be breathing a wee bit easier today. They're in seventh place. In the Championship, Champions Hibs had a comfortable away win at air while Smorton again were beaten by Dunfermline this time. The Greenock side will now finish fourth and will be ready for the playoffs, no doubt. Who they will play, though, in the first tie won't be decided until next week because both Falkirk and Dundee United drew at the weekend and the Bairns are still one point ahead of United with one to play. Next Saturday, Falkirk travel to Dumbarton and United will be on the other side of the Clyde at Morton. A point for United will not be enough even if Falkirk are beaten because of the Bairns' superior goal difference so United must win to have any chance of avoiding that first playoff tie 
To avoid being sucked into a relegation playoff, St Mirren just need a point against Hibs at Easter Road next week to ensure that Wraith Rovers, who are at home to air, go into that playoff. Livingston, of course, have already secured the League 1 Championship, but the League 2 title will go at the last day. Our both are one point ahead of Forfar, so a win for the Red Lifties against Stirling at 4th Bank next week will secure their promotion. Any slip-ups and the Loons could cash in at home against Annan. Meanwhile, either Clyde, Berwick Rangers or Cowdenbeath could lose their league status altogether. Either of them will face a playoff final against Bucky or East Kilbride to maintain that senior league status. Interesting times for many clubs with rich histories, but the outcomes will be partly known this time next week. Rangers uh, haven't had their troubles to seek lately. The end of the Warburton experiment, the seeding of second place to Aberdeen, a litigation war with Mike Ashley, reliance and loans to see them through the season, and Dave King's spectacularly embarrassing spat with the takeover panel have all added to the litany of woe emanating from Ibrooks. The humiliation, at least as their fans see it at the hands of Celtic after that 5-1 reversal at Ibrooks, has piled even greater pressure on a board who have promised so much and delivered nothing that fans see as progress. Rangers' biggest asset by far is the fans who turn up to see them every week. A full Ibrooks cheering the side on is worth several points in a season, even for a team with limited quality. And the Rangers board's singular lack of skill in managing that asset effectively, that is to say managing their expectations effectively, is the biggest reason that the light at the end of the Rangers tunnel is receding to the proportions of a 1950s TV screen dot. I don't believe that Rangers supporters would be averse to more realistic expectations given the financial constraints the club are burdened by. The board shouldn't be frightened to offer transparency to the fans, but are they capable of it? I'm not convinced. Joey Barton says his 18-month ban for betting in football matches is not entirely commensurate with the previous sanctions imposed against others. Every case, of course, is different. But when you look at the sanctions imposed on players on both sides of the border who have admitted betting even against their own team whilst participating in matches, something Barton is not accused of doing, there does seem to be something of an anomaly as far as I'm concerned. Barton's claims that he suffers from an addiction to gambling complicates matters a bit. The question arises as to whether someone who suffers from clinical addiction problems should be supported rather than sanctioned, especially in the event that the offence does not affect sporting outcomes. There's also the wider point that football appears to consider that gambling is a bad thing, and yet the game benefits greatly from cash input from gambling firms, thus extending the reach of those firms into the football community, and effectively uh, encouraging fans to participate whilst making it an offence for players to do the same. Like most things associated with football, leadership only ever shows itself when there's money at stake for the clubs. The exercise of authority when sport and integrity is at stake is a far more rare occurrence and underlines yet again that the people running football have little or no interest in the sport itself outside of what's in it for them. Barton is not a sympathetic figure, but he is an easy scapegoat, the equivalent of shooting fish in a barrel. Maybe the authorities should look at themselves here as well as Barton. 
At 34, the sentence is effectively a seen a day ban from the game. Many of the people in the game who handed down that ban are those who have been associated with the characters who have done far more damage to the sport than Barton ever could, even at the height of his buffoonery. Hypocritical? I think so. The Craig White trial began in Glasgow last week and the former Rangers chairman faces charges including one of pretending to have funds to facilitate the purchase of Rangers. Emerging tidbits from testimony so far include uh, it was claimed that Ali McCoy had a contract that would pay him a substantial but undisclosed to the, the court sum in the event that he was not offered the manager's job when Walter Smith retired. In testimony from Donald McIntyre, former Rangers financial director, he said that Rangers had discussed folding the club over EBTs as early as 2010. He also said that Lloyds Bank were putting the squeeze on Rangers to clear their debts with them and that Rangers had used tickets in the past but did not disclose that deal to their fans. McIntyre also claimed that Rangers had accepted liability for the wee tax case but that the Murray Group had decided not to pay, despite a fine of over £1.8 million being added to the bill because of that non-payment. David Murray's evidence included an admission that the club had used EBTs and that they gave Rangers a chance to get players we perhaps wouldn't be able to afford. Murray also claimed that he had no personal relationship with White, after being shown 10 pages of SMS text messages between himself and White. There was also a striking introduction of handwritten notes allegedly made by Murray Group's David Horn, which suggested that he was party to discussions about the possibility of Octopus, which is Ticketus, funding up to £15 million towards the takeover deal. That was as early as the 3rd of November 2010. Murray denied when giving testimony that Horn had shared that information with him, and that he remained in the dark about the ticketist deal until December 2011. Murray also claimed that he had received proof of funds from white solicitors, but it was unsigned in his words. I'd just like to add that all the information that I've just reported on is what was said in court. None of it is to be taken as fact. That'll be for the courts to decide. What has been reported is what witnesses have actually said and we draw no conclusions from that one way or the other. What we hope is that the reporting assists in an understanding of what is actually happening during the trial. Don't forget that you can subscribe to the SFM podcasts, including the Weekly Monitor, and you can do that at podcast.sfm.scot or on iTunes. It's free, so please go there to subscribe or to have a look at our previous episodes. We 
We can now welcome James Dolman of Byline, who has been tweeting live from the court throughout the trial and who also joined us last week. James, of course, is an award-winning journalist whose speciality is reporting from our courts. He's familiar with all of the various Rangers-related litigation that has filled the blog pages for some time now. And his temperate and factual reporting of those matters has put a check in some of the runaway speculation and hysteria that's become such a feature of the cases. James, thanks for speaking to us again today. One of the things I found curious last week was that the whole thing came to a stop because a juror was unwell. And this was in the middle of David Murray's testimony. I'm, I'm sure he wasn't the best pleased at being inconvenienced in, in that way, but, but what are the rules governing jurors' illnesses and, and how they impact on other people? Do, do they have replacements, for instance, reserves that they can call up after a time? No, there's no substitutes, I'm afraid. It's the 15... 15- it's quite clear you can't proceed the case unless all the jury's there. Every, all of them have to be there. If one person's not there, everything stops. And it's not particularly uncommon. What would happen is if someone developed a longer illness or felt they couldn't stay on the trail anymore, the judge would excuse them and would just go down one. And I believe in Scotland the minimum you can do is 10 before it's a mistrial. And how many are there just now? Uh, 15. No, 15. So, so they, could, they could, in theory, lose five jurors but still have a conclusion to the trial? Correct, but you've got to think from that's obviously not a particularly good outcome for anyone. The more jurors, the better. But I, I think we lost one case, we lost two. That's the most I've ever seen uh, going. It can happen, um, but it's it's not unusual to lose one, but to lose two would be considered unfortunate, if you'd like to put it like that. Okay, well, well apart from that setback, uh, if, if that's what you call it, is there any sense from the courtroom that they're either ahead or behind the schedule or, or that, that everything's proceeding swimmingly? I think it's moving reasonably quickly. From what I can see, it's. Um, I think, as I said to someone in court, most trials are a bit like a game of cricket. Not very much happens for quite a long time. And suddenly something amazing happens or something exciting happens. This case is more like a game of basketball. It seems to be every 30 seconds you have to send another tweet with a key point on it. Or you're just halfway through making a tweet about one point and then another one comes barreling along behind it. So it is quite good we've got more than one person tweeting in court because there's so much information coming out. But yeah, we're through four witnesses which isn't bad going for first week. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you about, about the other tweeters because I think there are two or three people who are tweeting and I just wondered if, if that helps or hinders, but yeah, you've pretty much answered that. I think it's good. The more people doing it, the more information gets out, the more people can understand because it's virtually impossible to tweet every word. So you might, you might miss something and someone else will get it. That makes the whole experience. For people following it on Twitter, I think it makes the whole experience better. On the actual uh, trial itself and, and, and some of the things that uh, that have emerged um, from testimony, uh, uh, to me, the White's QC, Donald Finley, uh, appears to have slapped down witnesses on, on a few occasions. Now, I mean, I don't know if that's normal uh, or if it's a playing the man situation as a, as a tactic or, or, or even we're allowed to talk about that, but, uh, but, it, but it's certainly something that I find interesting. It's a job of a defence advocate to be, to be, you know, to get to the truth and challenge witnesses. I've seen I've seen far more brutal cross-examinations than that, to be honest. Um, the late Paul McBride, that I've seen him do cross-examinations which would put that one in the shade. But Mr Murray's got a very, Mr Finlay, sorry, he's got a very important role we play in this trial. Mm-hmm. It's his job to defend his client, to challenge evidence against his client. And quite frankly, if that means being robust with a witness to try and, you know, elicit an answer, that's exactly what a defence advocate is there to do, and it's exactly what you would want someone representing you in a court to do. 
that's it's maybe, but but I, 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 I just thinking he was getting a wee bit emotional, you know, when he was talking about what they've done to our club, you know, you know that that kind of thing is 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 that you know could that be construed as some kind of conflict of interest, or, or, or am I just being going all Hollywood on you again? I don't think there's a conflict of interest. Mister Finley served on the board of Rangers what 1999, I believe he was. Yeah, Quite I think it was around then. Yeah. You've got to remember the the role of a QC. A QC can go into court on the Monday morning arguing for a bunch of environmentalists protesting an oil rig mm-hmm. and go in on the Thursday afternoon and defend an oil company from a different group of environmentalists. Yeah. QCs are generally seen as above conflicts of interest. That's how the law treats them. They aren't in that position. If they had a personal financial interest in a case, that's a slightly different thing. But in, in this case, I don't think there's any... Mr Finlay, as far as I can see, is doing an excellent job de- defending his client and that's exactly what he's supposed to do. You were talking earlier on about this being more like a like a basketball game, and that there are so many things coming to light, almost a stream of things coming to light. Uh, I'm just thinking about the, the the laws of unintended consequences in some cases as well. Obviously, not pertaining directly to to the court case, but a lot of the stuff emerging, it seems to me, might have repercussions further afield for individuals uh, and organisations other than just the accused in this case. David Murray's statement about why Rangers use DBTs, for example, I think might have wider repercussions. Uh, is is that um, is is that something that that perhaps the somebody like Finley would 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 be trying to get out there because it would embarrass witnesses? I don't think Mister Finley's getting is doing anything other than defending his client. Um, any court case brings out more facts than you expect. It always brings out unexpected elements and more information. What happened to Rangers underway has been a hugely discussed story, a huge story of interest. So we're getting some of the factual information behind what happened. Now we're getting to see some of the internal documents. So what I hope the trial does is it makes it clearer to everyone by the end, but we'll be sitting going, yeah, we've got a much better understanding of what happened. Yeah, but you know, as we spoke about last week as well, that to some extent, a lot of us think we already do have an understanding of what's happened, and I think that's been pretty much blown out of the water already this week. You know, assuming, and you know, I'm assuming that what people said under oath were, you know, was the truth, and if that's the case, you know, that that seems to me that we have to reassess how we look at the whole thing I think the important thing to remember is we're one week in certainly we're one week in there's a, there's a long long way to go Yeah. in this case you know and a lot of the times you'll see in a document um, say for example there was a lot of excitement uh, or media talk about a document where an advisor uh, to Mr Murray had written the words octopus which were the parents of Neoticitus on a handwritten note mm-hmm. now, people may think aha the smoking gun but what we haven't heard is from the gentleman who wrote it what he's got to say about that so nothing's been proved in that sense it's yeah. what it is it's a piece of paper with that word written on it until that witness comes into the dock if he's called we don't know if he's going to but if Mr Finley calls him and did hint that he was going to the jury then we get his explanation of what, so the, the picture comes together over a period of time it's also important that the prosecution have established some very important things from their point of view some very important facts but they're still not really at the meat of it yet the meat of their case they're just for the moment going through the established facts that they're establishing certain facts that uh, Mr. White bought the club, that Mr. White had these means to be Mr. Murray, and so on and so forth. That these managers met him and things. Walter Smith was involved in a meeting with him. So that's all that's been established. And there's a long, long way to go. And I would really urge people not to draw conclusions. It's very tempting in a world of internet, but it's far too early to start drawing conclusions about anything very much. 
What, what, what were the significant things that, that, that you thought? I mean, we, we, we also mentioned the claim about uh, Ali McCoy's contract uh, that was made about, uh, you know, like some sort of uh, recompense that he would be due if he if he wasn't given the uh, the manager's job. And, you know, obviously, I, you know, in a football sense, I thought that that seemed very significant. The acceptance uh, that Donald McIntyre uh, testified to of the the the, um, the the wee tax case bill and uh, and and some other stuff as well. But but, but was there anything that you found like like really uh, you know like a big shock? I don't know about a big shock to, to get through the contract thing with Mister McCoyst again. He wasn't asked about it directly. You know, he wasn't asked did this happen, so he wasn't allowed to give his side of it. Mm-hmm. How it developed was Mister Finley said to. Um, I'm getting them like Walter Smith when he was cross-examining him. Did you know of an employee who was given this pre-contract agreement that would have to have been paid off if he didn't get your job when you left? And Mr. Smith's reply was, well, Mr. McCoy negotiates his own contract. Mm-hmm. That's all we have in that information on it. We, no one's ever said publicly in court, Ali McCoy said this contract. Mr. McCoy wasn't asked about it and not given his point of view. So, Again, we stick to the facts. The facts are interesting, but so far they don't in themselves prove that this contract has existed. Yeah. The, um, the 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 Martin Bain contract. The, 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 I think they were more explicit about that, weren't they? Well, there was discussion of an executive receiving a pay rise. The executive wasn't named um, at that point, and there was a discussion about um, Mr. Mr. Murray was asked by Mr. Finlay if he knew that Martin Bain had allegedly been given a notice period of thirty nine months. And I believe Murray's reply to that was he didn't know about it, he wasn't involved in the take day in the club. So again, that's something that's been put by a defence lawyer that this happened. But we so far haven't seen a document and we haven't seen, you know, I've called Mr. Bain to come up and say, well, this, this is correct or this isn't. You know, I think it's been, a, what's been to me the interesting point in the case is, again, we're going through this really methodically now and we're going through piece by piece and part by part. And as it, and, and what, at the end, we hope all hope will come out as the truth of what really happened. And, and I think you know, so far so the trail's going well, the information's coming out, people are following it, it's been excellent coverage in the newspapers and things, so yeah, I think it's going to be well at the moment. James, there was there was another. Obviously, you you think the the, the trial is going, uh, you know, a, a, a good pace and so on and so forth, despite the the setback of the 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 old Judah. But there was another another uh, development outside the court when it appears that that Craig White was uh, abused, uh, verbally at least, uh, by an individual. Well, I mean, I can't add much to the reporting that people have seen in the papers and stuff. Obviously, it's a live case too, so we're talking about a live case occurring within a live case. But I can tell you what I saw on the day. Mr um, White was coming down the road towards the court. He stopped two police officers and he pointed back towards the car park at the back of the Phoenix Centre, and a bunch of police rushed up that way. And, and that's as much as we saw outside the court. But I do understand from press reports and that a man has been arrested, and I believe he's due to appear in court tomorrow. You know, so the actual incident didn't take place in the in the environs of the the high court itself, and it was it was somewhere up the road or or, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that's that's my that's what it appeared to me. Uh, interest in the, the the trial, obviously, it's great. We, we you know, there's a lot of comments she's been devoted to it. Uh, you know, thus far, that you know, it's been all over social media. But, do, do you think the interest is, as you predicted, is starting to pick up as the trial progresses? It's certainly getting busier in court. I mean, it's it's filling up. I mean, at the beginning there was quite a lot of empty seats. There's probably a lot fewer empty seats than there were. That may be to do with the witnesses they've had so far. They've been, you know, reasonably well-known figures. But again, interesting the case. Certainly inside the court, it's busier. 
And for me, as, as you know, it's something that we've spoken about offline before. I'm, I like to see people being interested in the court and going along and watching it themselves and drawing their own conclusions. It's very important that people know what's done in their name in the courts. And the people people in Friday all said they found it really fascinating to see the procedure and have an idea of how it all actually works. You know, it's really good for people to know, you know. Somebody else asked me the other day um, uh, online, and I promised I would ask you, uh, and and that was that that although uh, we're, we're not allowed to uh, to guess uh, who's going to be up as witnesses, uh, are we allowed to comment on whether witnesses can be recalled or not? You know, for instance, if uh, either the defence or the prosecution decided they wanted to speak to someone who'd already, already given testimony, are they allowed to recall them? Uh, yes, they will, um, either party can make a motion to the judge and it would be the judge's decision whether they want to bring someone back or not. I, I would say it's very unusual. Mm-hmm. It's not common at all. Uh, if you remember Tommy Sheridan's trial, when he sacked his own lawyers, he recalled all the witnesses that previously had been on because the judge agreed with yeah. his motion. So it can happen. It can happen, but it's, it's that's the only case I can think of that happens. There was also an, an unusual thing where where Donald Finlay had asked the David Murray uh, if he would like to comment on what some people w- were likely to say, uh, if I've got the, the, the right end of the stick here. And what I thought was, well, why would you know, just bring him back later on anyway to, to comment on something that somebody actually did say? The problem then, you would have a sort of back and forth. Mm-hmm. He said, she said. So she'd so imagine someone later on said something. She'd bring back Mr. Murray, get his version. Would you then have to recall the, the other person yeah. to contradict that? So what a defence advocate will do, as Mr. Finley did, is put certain matters to Mr. Murray that may come up later on so that his answers and his evidence is on the record on what, what he said about those issues. So that's why he would ask questions that haven't we haven't heard any direct evidence about yet, like the, the handwritten note, for example. He'll ask him about it to get his position on the record so he can then deal with it but it's, it's if you think about it it's a court people should people come in give their evidence and leave it's the job of the lawyers to tie it together it's not a common thing that people get recalled and asked hold on a minute what about what you said there it's just not done generally okay james listen thanks very much for your time uh, again this week it's, it's been a very fascinating week can we uh, speculate about anything at all that's likely to happen uh, from tomorrow uh, there'll be a jury and some lawyers and hopefully some witnesses <laughs> James thanks a lot and uh, hopefully we'll speak to you soon thanks for your time Jim. James Dolman there and thanks very much to James for giving us the benefit of his uh, experience and expertise in the Craig White trial hopefully we'll manage to persuade him to come back sometime in the future to give us another update now just before we go let's talk about Harry Melrose Harry Melrose was born in Edinburgh on the 31st of May 1935. By 1956, when he was playing as a winger with his local side, Lokeith Thistle, a number of clubs were keen to sign him. Harry chose Rangers and went off to Glasgow for a fruitless period of trying to break into what was in those days the top side in the country. After only one scoring appearance for the Jers, the Dunfermline manager Andy Dixon persuaded Harry to head to East End Park. He signed for Dunfermline on the 5th of May 1958, that was a few weeks before his 23rd birthday, and in a brilliant first season, his speed, skill and powerful shooting saw him become not only Dunfermline's top scorer with 28 goals, but also the highest scoring winger in Scotland. 
On the last day of that season, uh, the Pars needed to beat Partick Thistle by a large margin to stand any chance of avoiding the drop, and did so thanks to Harry, who scored six, an incredible 10-1 victory, sorry Jags, to equal the record for a winger in Scottish football. After the arrival of the great Jock Steen as manager in 1960, Harry was a key part of the team that lifted the Scottish Cup, playing in all but one of the eight matches including the final against Celtic. The following season, Harry netted Dunfermline's first ever goal in European competition, that was against St Patrick's Athletic, and he scored the late winner that famously knocked Everton out of the 62-63 Fairs Cup. Steen, always the innovator, started to experiment in 1962 with the 4-4-2 formation, and recognising Harry's passing ability and great reading of the game, converted him to an inside forward, effectively making Harry Melrose one of the first midfield players in Scottish football. In his last full season at East End Park, uh, he helped the club return to Hamden and the Scottish Cup final again by scoring the opener in the 2-0 semi-final win over Hibs. And although he did the same in the final against Celtic, now ironically managed by Steen, it wasn't enough to prevent the Glasgow club winning 3-2. The following year, now 30, Harry had adapted to a new role coaching and captaining the reserves. But Aberdeen manager Eddie Turnbull thought he still had something to offer and paid £10,000 for his transfer on the 8th of October 1965. The following season, he captained the Dons to the fourth place in the league, his highest position for 11 years, and once again came up against Celtic in the Scottish Cup final. A final that took place 50 years ago on Saturday past. Uh, unfortunately for Harry, Aberdeen lost 2-0 on that occasion. Early in 1969, he took over as player-manager of Berwick Rangers and guided that club to sixth place in the old second division. That was in 1974. And at that time, it was his best ever position. At East End Park, however, the Pars were struggling to come to terms with life after league reconstruction and after the resignation of manager George Miller, Harry was persuaded to take over the managerial reins at East End Park on the 10th of September 1975. The failure to qualify for the inaugural Premier League had been a devastating blow to a club already suffering severe financial problems. And as the crowds dwindled even further, Harry was powerless to halt the decline as the bars slid almost helplessly into the third tier. After two near misses, promotion was finally achieved in 1979, but although Dunfermline seemed to be slowly rebuilding, pressure was intensifying and Harry following a poor run of form, particularly at home in 1981. Having suffered a bout of serious illness a couple of years earlier, he decided that managing a cash-strapped club was a thankless task, and he handed in his notice on the 9th of September. After a period in which his only interest in the game was as a Dunfermline supporter, he returned to East End Park in May 1990 as general manager. Uh, but it was as a player that Harry has gained legendary status. His total of 106 goals for Dunfermline in 271 appearances remains the ha- third highest in the club history behind Charlie Dixon and Bobby Skinner. Most of the information that I've just recounted came from the excellent Dunfermline Athletic website. It's clear from Harry Melrose's career that his love affair with the Pars, which started almost 60 years ago, is one that has enriched Harry himself and Dunfermline too. His continued support of the club alongside the surviving players of the Scottish Cup finals in the 1960s, visible support, I mean, is very heartlifting. My memory of Harry as a player is that he was full of guile, appeared sometimes from nowhere to deliver a killer blow, as he did in the 1965 Cup final against Celtic, and was an elegant, crafty 
an ingenious presence in the field. Now 81, Harry Melrose was a special, special player who has been a gifted infirmland to Aberdeen and to Scottish football in general. Thanks very much for the memories, Harry, and long may your lumbry. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the SFM podcast, including the weekly monitor. You can do that at podcast.sfm.scot or on iTunes. It's free, so please go there to subscribe and have a look at our previous episodes. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks to James Dolman again and to Harry Melrose for all the memories. And our thanks, of course, to you for being at one once again with TWM at sfm.scot. I've been John Cole. See you next time.